Many individuals try to find success on a daily basis. But what defines this success? Where does it come from? When you find a passion in your life and pursue this passion, everything can come together to form success. This is Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. Our guests will motivate you to take the next step to your success. Now, here's your host, David Wallach. Good morning, y'all, and welcome to our weekly episode, Taking Care of Business. 18 years ago was the first time I met today's guest. It took me a while to figure out whether he's a lawyer or a developer, maybe a real estate investor, or a real estate industry gossip columnist. It did take me a while, and then I realized my guest today is a little bit of what I have mentioned and more. He's a true serial entrepreneur and a community advocate for Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and Israel. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. My guest today is Bill Lister, and thank you, by the way, for hosting us here at your uh, lovely office with the fireplace uh, overlooking 4th Street Southwest in Calgary. Uh, And, you know, it's snowing out there, uh, so we are warm here and we have the great smell of the wood burning. Um, So, Bill, you are what uh, we call a true Calgarian. We know you were born here, you were raised here, and you watched the city grow. Um, and go, the city went through good time, tough time, and also glorious events. And in the wake of, you know, Winter Olympics in South Korea just finished and uh, just ended, and Canada had the best Olympic in history in terms of uh, medal count. Um, and I want to ask you, in 1988, um, what are your memories from the 1988 Olympics uh, here that Calgary was hosting? Well, I had uh, fantastic memories, uh, the, the energy of the city, the vibrancy, the positive attitude, but also it uh, affected my entrepreneurship ideas because I did have a building overlooking Olympic Square that we had um, leased out fully to six retailers and American Express was negotiating to Uh, lease 60 suites in a slum building that we were converting at the time and I thought the Olympics were going to be the mother load as well of a fantastic investment except a fire happened so the fire happened about a year before the Olympics and there was no insurance on the building because the building had no tenants in it cut off electricity and gas and so the fire at the time, the fire insurance at the time was $50,000 and we made a decision not to spend the 50 and simply as we're about to go through city council, get permits, why waste 50,000? How can you lose a building when there's no tenants, no gas and electricity? We only forgot one thing, that the building next door burnt down <laughs> <laughs> and the fire uh, went over the roof and... Uh, it uh, demolished our building. So the Olympics had a mixed, we'll call it, message for us is always have insurance, (laughs) even if you think you don't need it. So that was one part of the Olympics. And the second part of the Olympics, aside from the fantastic energy and everything in the city, was probably something that you didn't know that I did from checking up on me. But uh, there was an Olympic t-shirt. You competed with Eddie the Eagle. Well, yes, in a way. (laughs) So I was a lawyer at the time and also had some real estate investments. But 
I saw an Olympic opportunity in making T-shirts. And there was a fellow who made T-shirts here that sold 50,000 T-shirts for about $50 each, and they flew off the shelves. And the T-shirt had a Canadian flag on the front, and it had the eight Olympic big countries all over the place, and no Olympic rings because he didn't pay, you know, and get permission to do it. So after I saw that fantastic opportunity, I said, you know, I'm going to make some T-shirts myself for the Korean Summer Olympics, which were the following fall. And I said to myself, I will probably sell 50,000 shirts in Seoul, Korea, make $10 a shirt, make half a million dollars and call it a couple weeks, not a day, but it's a couple <laughs> weeks. So I actually flew to South Korea. Um, too much information probably on this stupid t-shirt deal, <laughs> or do you want to talk about real estate? No, that's, go ahead. You're, it's awesome. This t-shirt deal was unbelievable. So I go to Korea by myself. I land there not knowing a thing, and I uh, go to the Canadian Consul General, say, who, who makes cotton t-shirts? I have 10 Calgary t-shirts that I had bought up as samples. And he sends me on a, uh, he gives me 10 people to go see, and every one of them is a bra manufacturer <laughs> of cotton. So Bill Lister, the entrepreneur, is touring the back streets of Seoul bra <laughs> manufacturers. They're making bras and bras and bras, and I'm in these. So anyway, I end up doing a joint venture with a fellow named Mr. Kang, his Kang. So we built five or 10,000 t-shirts right there on that visit. And I came back and we built them and I sold them in those days, we had Woodward's, the Bay. I came back and we sold five or 10,000 t-shirts through the Canadian sources, built up some capital. So you have good memories uh, from the Olympics. Yeah, no, I was having fun. We lost a building worth a couple million dollars. <laughs> but you and, sold 10,000 shirts. But we sold 10,000 <laughs> shirts, which, which funded another 40,000 shirts for the Olympics. So I got some working capital to uh, build the other shirts. I think they cost $10 at the time. Did you also invest in the bra industry at that time or just you stuck to uh, t-shirts? No, but there is uh, <laughs> a, another side story that once you're an entrepreneur, uh, I'll tell you how I got up to first class if you want to know. Oh, always. All right, so, so I have Mr. Kang. We have a nice joint venture. We have a non-disclosure agreement. I don't want to see my T-shirts all over North uh, South Korea by the time. So we've signed everything up. Mr. Kang and I are partners 50-50. So I then have to fly back to the real Olympics. So we've made a few dollars to fund all the T-shirts. I have about 10 T-shirts in my carry-on knowing what I'm going to do next. So I go to the gate agent, Singapore Airlines. I said, uh, yeah, I'm flying over to the Olympics and they don't know I'm not an official Olympic supplier of t-shirts. I show them these t-shirts and they look fantastic. And they have the Korean flag on the front and all the other flags. And I says, you know, I don't know if you have room in first class, but I have five t-shirts for you guys if you upgrade me. <laughs> sure enough. The lady at the gate agent in Vancouver airport says, I have to clear this with the main manager downtown. Anyway, they did clear it. Now I'm flying first class with five t-shirts, less. <laughs> and uh, I'm flying with Dick Pound and I, Dick Pound. Yeah. 
Dick Pine, <laughs> he's paid probably 10 grand a ticket and I've got an economy ticket and minus five, five shirts. shirts. Now there's about 10, or not 10, four or five flight attendants for about three of us in first class. <laughs> and I say to the girls, what are you doing? What am I? I, have, I have 10 hours to sell myself and the t-shirts. So every girl gets a t-shirt in first class because I was carrying a lot of shirts. I, I had a hotel way far away from the action and after a 10 hour flight and free t-shirts, one of the girls has agreed to give up her room for me at the Hyatt Hotel. So I'm in the line with about 20 or 30 Singapore Airlines flight attendants and this and goofy pilots. Canadian is in the line. I go to check in because she's given me her room, not yeah. to sleep with her. She's doubled up. I've got her own room. Hyatt Security, excuse me, who are you? <laughs> he says, well, I, you know, I'm... Olympic supplier of t-shirts and I have uh, made the deal with, I forget the name, probably Mrs. Kim because everybody in Korea is either Kim or Lee or there's one other name. Anyway, they said, I'm sorry, uh, security, you do not get a room of Singapore Airlines. Uh, it just doesn't happen. So I went to my own hotel, but that night I took Mr. Kang and myself and the two girls to an Olympic event. So that's the Olympics for me. It was Calgary, in Korea. So the reason I asked you about it, it leads to my next question. Um, you know, there is a debate now in the city whether we should bid for the 2026 Olympics. And what is your opinion? But as a businessman, as someone who was here in 88 and someone who saw the result or, or the, the after 88 Olympics, what happened to Calgary? What is your opinion on whether we should host or not host or bid at least for the 2026 Olympics? Well, uh, a good question. I'm an anti-debt guy. That's a four-letter word, D-E-B-T. Calgary and Alberta and the federal government are in such dire uh, straits because of federal and B.C. and oil prices. All in one, they gang up against Alberta now. I don't think we're in a position to fund anything but what we really need, whether we need some homeless funds, we need all the social structures. And another uh, story about the Olympics is because I was a partner of the Olympic lawyer for the Olympic bid. His name is Danny Russell, Calgary fellow. When we won the IOC bid long ago, Danny and I were roommates in college and we were law partners. And I got the ins and outs. I went to the Olympic Committee in Lausanne to visit him. It's an old boys club of um, European elitists who spend money like crazy. They're very entitled. It's limousines, it's first class. It's, it's almost like FIFA, the corruption. And what else is corrupt? Everything's corrupt. But <laughs> FIFA, they're always finding all these elitists at the head. I don't like to use the word sucking the money, but they suck a lot of that money for themselves. So I really don't want to fund this elitist European organization while we have local needs and we're struggling to pay our debt. So that's a long answer to a short question. Well, but it's a good answer. Um, so, um, Bill, let's go and uh, find out a little bit more about you on a personal level. Sure. Uh, so you, we know already that you, uh, were, you were born here, you grew up here. So what do you remember from Calgary 
many, many years ago. I won't mention how many years ago, but many, many years ago, before the Olympics. Well, before the Olympics, uh, doesn't matter. I'm, I'm 65 years old. You don't look a day older than 70. Thank you. <laughs> and um, that's in dog years. So, <laughs> so uh, when I grew up, the tallest building in Calgary was about 12 stories, the Summit Hotel. Then we had Elviden House, which was about 21. You'd know better. You yeah. probably sold it <laughs> to somebody in your practice. But uh, I grew up in Calgary. was a small town, very entrepreneurial, oil and gas, real estate. Uh, everybody was proud. We used to have an East End. I used to love going to the East End and seeing, um, we'll call it, all the small merchants there. So we weren't a skyscraper city. We were just a small, I think we were about 300,000 when I grew up. Then it changed with oil prices, etc., and uh, became a bigger city, even though we're still a small city on world scale. We became a bigger thinking city. So at one point, we were a small thinking city. Oil prices went, I think, in the, um, was that the 1967, 73, something with the Arab War. And then Calgary shot up and international and national investment came here. And they built a whole bunch of buildings. And then uh, we had a we now have what 150,000 people working downtown. Yeah. And when I grew up, we had 300,000 people total in the city. So um, city's still the same city. Fantastic people, very warm people, humble people. I think even the wealthiest people in Calgary, you wouldn't even know they have large money. There's no real chauffeurs in town. There's no. There's no elitist culture here. You can you can hang out with a fellow who's worth uh, two million, fifty million, or three hundred million. He's the same guy. He wants to do business in a fair way. I believe Calgary businessmen just want to do business. Um, when you were growing up as a kid, what kind of kid were you? Were you involved in sports? Were you just doing already businesses? Like at, at your youth, not at six, seven, eight, but let's say at your youth. Well. Um, and good question. I was probably, I was the son of a fur merchant who wasn't doing that well. He was, I, I considered ourselves lower, middle, or middle class. We lived in a nice house in a good area, but I knew the cash flow on our house was not that, uh, we'll call it, uh, bountiful. So somehow, subliminally, I had a bar mitzvah at 13 and I got $2,000. Most of my friends were going to Hawaii and their parents got a motorcycles and I was watching this, but I didn't really know what I was doing. But sublimely, I probably said to myself, how can I compete? Uh, because I knew I wasn't going to inherit a lot of money. My father was working hard. My mother worked at Eaton's. So we are a two income family with no income. <laughs> uh, but we weren't starving. Uh, we didn't have really a holidays for us was going to radium. It wasn't Hawaii. Yeah. So somehow you don't really realize what you're doing, but you're you're governed by what you're seeing in your culture and whatever's around you. So I took the money from the bar mitzvah and I decided I'd start a landscaping company. And I bought two mowers in the beginning and I started doing lawns myself. And I probably had 20 lawns the first year. I'm 14 years old. And I was walking my mower around the neighborhood and then sometimes my father would drive me. And after a while, I then built up to 40 lawns and hired one person. And um, What age were you when you hired your first employee? 14. Okay. 
And then I built up, and then I put an ad in the paper, uh, university students required to landscaping in the whatever, in the Calgary Herald or the Albertan at the time. And uh, I would say, Mr. Yeah, Lovelier Lawns by Lister was my company name. We're looking for staff. And guys would come to my door and they'd say, is your dad home? (laughs) (laughs) So I said, no, I'm Mr. I'm Bill Lister. And uh, so what I did is I gave them each 20 lawns. So I, at the beginning of every year, put out thousands of flyers all over Southwest Calgary, Lovelier Lawns by Lister. So that's how, and I would answer the phone. I had a phone in my room, special dedicated line. So I figured out you have to, with an answering service, it can't be we're phoning my parents' house. Yeah. It's a real business. And the funny story is sometimes I'd have complaints the first year uh, one of my students, and I used to pay them per lawn, they have 20, but they would possibly not do a great job on one or two lawns, and I would get fired. So the next year, I put out different color um, pamphlets, and that was called Discount Lawn Maintenance, different phone number. <laughs> so Discount Lawn Maintenance would actually get calls. Yes, we had lovelier lawns by Lister last year, and we don't like them. Could you send out an estimate? So I sent out a different university student because he had the other 20. So I, I was monopolizing the market. I was actually, in those days, quite famous as a young entrepreneur landscaper. And in the end, I had about 100 lawns. Nice. Um, so, you know, Bill, we reached our first commercial break. Good. And uh, I encourage our listeners to open a new tab. Go to www.securefund, with no E after the R, dot com. Check the project showcase uh, page and discover what Bill and Secure Fund have developed over the years. We will meet you here on the other side of the commercials. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the Seventh Wave Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. 
That's D-I-V-I Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back with our guest, Bill Lister, owner of Secure Fund Capital and Development Corporation. So, Bill, before uh, we kind of, uh, we know already that uh, you uh, are a lawyer. So, what made you decide law is your future when you graduated uh, high school? Was it an event, someone like a person that influenced you, or you had your eyes focused on law before that? Um, in, in those days, I felt my uh, strengths were either law or business. In those days, uh, the corporate finance fellows who are graduating with BCOMs or MBAs were having trouble getting a job. The business was bad business, commission-based business in Calgary, eat what you kill. And law was an income business, and because I grew up craving an income, I decided law was a safer path where you could always make a living somehow, may not be a huge living, but you'd make a living. So it wouldn't be zero to millions, it might be in the moderate income. And um, once you graduated law school, uh, what was your first job or what was your first company you worked with? Uh, McDonald, McDonald, Sullivan, McDonald, Pope. I interviewed for firms and um, the fellow that interviewed me asked me about what I was doing and when I was uh, doing my interviews I probably owned three or four pieces of property at the time. He was quite impressed that I had done some uh, my own property and uh, it was a real estate based firm so they hired me quite quickly as he told me later he says they had never met a candidate like me because most people came in quite theoretical and I was quite practical. And how long did you stay with them? And uh, About three years, we would have stayed longer, but they had a partnership shakeup. So myself and two other fellows from the firm went off on our own and specialized in real estate and development law. So, oh, so you had two partners when you uh, left, when yeah. you started your company? Mm-hmm. And uh, what was the vision of that company when you started with your two partners? We didn't have a lot of vision. It was servicing clients. Uh, From my own purposes, I never really wanted to be the most fantastic lawyer in the world. I was more passionate about my real estate. So what I did is I had excess income in those days and every time I had a little extra income, rather than spending it on second homes or living the lifestyle of a lot of lawyers that I knew, in big firms who are making you know, more money than I was, I was putting money down on small real estate deals. So uh, you worked three years in the uh, first uh, law firm, and where did you get the confidence that uh, after three years you'll be successful with your own practice? Because I was quite specialized uh, in real estate, I felt that uh, with my own knowledge and passion, real estate plus as a lawyer, you can always rely on precedents and what other lawyers have done. And I used to go to classes, special classes on real estate development law put out by the Law Society. So, and to tell you the truth, I don't think real estate development law is that difficult. Uh, you, as long as you follow precedents and logic and put in the correct clauses, uh, you can be a good lawyer. Now, were there any kind of naysayers at the time trying to kind of convince you not to open your own practice and stay with a bigger firm? Uh, I've never had naysayers or yaysayers. I've always moved to my own beat. Even my parents uh, never said, Bill, you must be a lawyer. Study law. 
Uh, in fact, in my first year uh, mentioning uh, my involvement with Israel, I had a passion to go to Israel when I was 18. And my mom and dad said, what are you going to Israel for? Even though they're Jewish people and you think every Jewish parent wants their kid to go to Israel. I said, I'm just going to Israel because I want to. And I had enough money for my lawn business to pay my own way. I said, I don't need money from you. I'm going to Israel. So no one really influenced me and said, do or don't. I followed my own path. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to the real estate because you keep uh, coming back to I, I owned already this, I owned already this. The reason you got into, I, I'm trying to understand, the reason you started buying real estate and got into real estate in investment, is it just to secure income that you were missing as, as a younger age? Um, well, it, I, I must tell you the story of my father helped me get in. What it, so he was a furrier, not, he was making $10,000 a year in those days. And I was making 5000 as a landscaper. And my dad came to me, I think I was about 15. And he didn't come as a wealthy father saying, my son, I want you to be a partner and let me put this in your name. My father came to me and said, how much do you have? <laughs> I need help with the down payment. So I said, I have 2000 extra from my income this year. And he had 4000 So he actually came to me as a brother, partner, you know, yeah. advisor, whatever. He asked me how much I had. So I got into real estate because father bought an old house. And... Uh, it was $6,000 down in Lower Mount Royal in Calgary. So I owned a third of it. So every year I was in the lawn business, I had two or 3000 extra. So by the time I'm 18, I had a third of three houses. But the best story, if you want me to tell you my best story, it was the Always. best. Always. We're looking for the best stories. So my last year when I was 18, my dad, same thing. How much do you have? 2000 So he bought a building under the Petro-Canada Center today in Calgary was called the Graham Block. And the whole building was $14,000 down. And um, the family, that you would know the family, carried us for $56,000. So it was $70,000. It was two or three commercial stores and 30 suites. It's sort of a slum. So I owned one-seventh of it, and I went away to Israel to school. Then I came back for commerce, and I went to Queens for university. And in those six years where I'm away, etc., Calgary, as you alluded to before, went from a nothing little city to boomtown Canada. And I'm articling student at this firm, and a fellow you and I know well, John Tarode, comes into the office. Mr. Lister, Bill, I understand I've searched title and I see it's registered to the office and I have a client wants to buy the building. So it was, uh, of course, uh, the Hanover. And uh, I says, oh, interesting. And duh, duh, duh. and we settled at a $700,000 price. But in the four or five or six years that we owned it while I was in school and law school, we had paid the building off. We had taken all the income and not distributed and just paid the... So you bought it for 70. 70. And you sold for 700. 14. But so 10% increase. Yeah, per year. <laughs> but the, the leverage there is very interesting. So I put up two grand out of the 14 down. Right. I got back 100,000 because I got one seven. One seven, yeah. So when I'm 23 years old, I have $100,000. More than any other articling student in town. 
And then I want and went and bought my house in Roxborough with that money. So your recommendation is uh, for every entrepreneur some put some money aside and buy real estate. Well, it's a really intelligent recommendation called buy low, sell high. <laughs> However, you got it. That's what you learned at university, right? That's it. Well, you know, when you bring up university, um, when I went into the real estate property and law at Queen's University, one of your major f- subjects is called property. And I was such a practical guy, I answered every question so quickly and uh, without getting into details, I get one plus one is two. I answered it and figured I aced the exam. At the end of the exam, the, I got a D minus in property. I thought I knew property. <laughs> I know the real world of property, but I didn't, I didn't show them how I got to my answer in law school. So I got a D minus in my favorite subject by being too quick to get to the answer. So you must analyze and show your thinking in law school. Um, so you are, uh, you know, a real estate investor and you're a lawyer. What made you go into the development world, which is a different than investment world? Yes. Well, the development world, I believe, is for people trying to create capital. And the investment world is for people who have capital. So if I had to differentiate pension funds, etc., they're in the investment world and they buy from developers who create the value. So we have to value add and take small ideas, which I've done a few times, and then sell to the investment world. So I'm not that rich where I'm Mr. Investment World. I'm still development world. I see. So you, you build your practice. Um, did you stay much longer with your two partners? Yeah, we stayed together. Um, I was 50 years old when I sold my practice. I see. And... The two partners that you had when you left the uh, articling uh, office, how uh, long were you with them? Uh, oh, the, they were 10 partners. With the first one, the, the firm blew up some internal strife. I was with them about three years. Then for the next, say, 20 or 30 years, with, we were on our own with two fellows. With two fellows. I see. And so you build your practice. You build your investment uh, portfolio. You do some development. You also mentioned earlier your passion for Israel, that you went there, when you, and then you just kind of stop and take your family and move to Israel. What, what kind of made this happen? Um, well, it was my daughter's bat mitzvah, which is a confirmation thing when you're 13. And um, interesting story, I had bought a building, uh, let's say the year before, which you probably know, um, Is it called Alberta Place? What's it called? Yeah, Alberta Place, that's what we know it as. Yes. So myself, oh, that's another entrepreneurial story. I'll tell you that one if you want. Anyway, um, I bought a building with two friends of mine, and we paid $6 million. And I think uh, your predecessor firm was the broker on the building, uh, Tarot. And um, then I decided I'd like to move to Israel and share the Israeli experience with my family and my daughter. And understand the Middle East and teach my children what it's really like over there rather than the media so I had this building and then we got a quick three million dollar offer profit so that helped me go to Israel because I said oh I think I just made him I can make a million dollars by selling and I moved my family to Israel rented my house there rented here but there's always a bad story to that 
because I wanted to go to Israel and went there with a million dollars and felt really good that I don't have to work for the year, I left about 20 million on the table. Why? Because when we bought it for five, six, six, and it went to nine, and that had to be, I could do the calculations, but 20, uh, about 20 years ago, Calgary was in a slump. So we paid $50 a square foot for the building. Uh, about three years later, and David knows all these stories and correct me if I'm wrong, TGS bought it from us at about $9 million. Then they flipped it for $14 million, And then it went for $28 million to Great West Life. And then it went to $34 million. So my little trip to Israel cost me $34 minus $9 million divided by my one-third. So how much would that trip cost me? Let's not talk about it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but how was the experience for you as a business owner in Israel? Uh, well, I didn't go there to do business, although I did come back to close a few deals, which is another interesting story. The Iraq, Saddam Hussein had sent some scuds into Israel about the year before I got there. And then we moved to Israel. And it's interesting, I've been to Israel 17 times, never had any fear Anytime, and I encourage everyone to go there to see that dynamic society, which is in a bad neighborhood, but it's a fantastic country. So, the second, the year I was there, Saddam was threatening again scuds. I'm a Canadian guy who doesn't know much about war, etc. I had to come home to close a deal, and I um, remember leaving my family, and we had a tour of the bomb shelter room. And there's a needle in the room and gas masks and everything because everybody's <laughs> worried about scuds. Uh, and here I am leaving my family that could have come back to Calgary with me. You know, it wasn't the greatest time to be in Israel as a Canadian because you're thinking Saddam is about to do scuds again. You don't know if it's chemical. And our family is totally content. They're, they went through the bomb shelter room. They got training. And... Uh, uh, we survived that thing because the UN, the last moment, did a deal somehow. But that was my only time in Israel where I had, what am I doing here? There's a little fear here. We have somebody sending missiles. Uh, the last 17 times, we take a lot of people to Israel to enlighten them about it. You never have any fear anywhere. I have more fear walking around any North American city at night. I see. So that was the biggest challenge while you guys were in Israel? Yeah, you, you had this Iraqi uh, maniac threatening Israel for no reason whatsoever except to stay in power. I see. And in terms of business, did you try to do any business there? I did the most fantastic deal I've ever done in Israel, but I couldn't pull it off. Why? I had done a they, deal. They didn't get the way you think? No, no. The Israelis were fantastic, and I had negotiated a deal to have about... 50 acres in Ramat Poleg with Israel's largest real estate company called Shikun Ovdim, which would be like the Marathon Realty of Canada or Brookfield of Canada. Somebody that scale wanted me to be a joint venture partner in developing 50 acres or dunams like a thousand units outside of Netanya on the beach. All I needed was $6 million. I had a million at the time of my own. I came back to raise the other five from very wealthy people, and I don't have to name them, but there was a lot of wealthy real estate people. But in those days, Canada and North America and England was crashing. So I went to the Bellsbergs, the Reichmans, many people like that saying, guys, I have this most fantastic deal in Israel I could do. 
If you give me five million, I have my own million, we'll structure a deal, we'll go 50-50 with Israel's largest real estate company, let's go, I felt it, I sensed it. None of them had the vision at the time, I could not raise the money, I went back to Israel, said, I'm sorry guys, thanks for the 50-50 JV, I can't do it. They said, you can't raise five, six million, can We didn't want you as a partner for your money, we want you for your North American expertise, intelligence, viewpoints on how to do things. I embarrassed myself totally. I see. Bill, we reached uh, our second commercial break. Uh, once again, during our commercial break, open a new tab at www.securefund.com. Go to About Us page and read about Secure Fund and Bill. We will back immediately following the commercials. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the Seventh Wave Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D I V I Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back uh, for the home stretch of today's Taking Care of Business with our guest, Bill Lister, owner of Secure Fund Capital and Development Corporation. Uh, so, Bill, before we went to the commercial, we kind of went through your experience, uh, you know, moving the family and, and, and trying to do business uh, in another country. Um, and, you know, you guys come back and... Did you have to build yourself from scratch or, uh, you know, everything here was still kind of stable for you in terms of what you had in your practice and your real estate investments? Uh, Good question. I was always using my law practice as cash flow, always had some reasonably good equity and assets, and then I built a golf course. So I came back here and a friend of mine said, we can do a golf course in the middle of the city. I have a connection at the city. Can you raise the money and I can get the lease? So we went to city council. And I remember I had to have four million at the time. I might have had two, three hundred thousand disposable income. But we went to city council. We did a presentation. 
And because of my law background and knowing how to do deals with conditional conditions, we announced at city council that if we get a satisfactory lease from the city, we will do the deal for $4 million. But I did not have $4 million at the time. So we beat out six other people. And I think the city council thought Secure Fund Capital Corporation was a big company, so they gave us the deal thinking we had $4 million, but we might have had 200000 The minute I got the lease, I raised the $4 million. So we built the golf course after. And I've done a few deals like that, speaking as an entrepreneur. If you're semi-sophisticated legal-wise and experience-wise, sometimes you can bluff yourself to a bigger deal than you're really entitled to. And I can tell you the biggest bluff was the Penhold Air Force Base, if, if you want to know about that. So, you know, it seems to me that from uh, discussing all the ventures you had, that you, uh, not maybe not always, but most of the times you have partners. Um, and how do you choose your partners? I try to... I, I shouldn't say most of the time partners. In my larger deals, I have partners. and my smaller deals, I do it myself. And obviously, as you build more capital up, you don't need as many partners. So this time in my life, probably less partners. But I choose my partners based on their skill set and intelligence and financial resources. I always say choose a partner who's smarter than you. But to tell you the truth, with all humility, uh, that hasn't always been the case in my choice of partners. So I choose my partners based on their specialization. So in my golf deal, I chose a golf builder, mm-hmm. a course builder. I did a truck stop with Esso here, which was another fantastic, call it BS deal, where I got myself into a bigger deal than I was entitled. So when I did this truck stop deal, because I just had a passion to own a truck stop since I'm five years old, I went and stole the manager of another truck stop who smartered me in his business. I did all the finance and the land assembly, but I needed him as a partner to impress Imperial Oil of Houston, Texas, that we are worthy of their truck stop business. Uh, You know another fellow named Yaakov, he was a building partner. So when I built um, residential, probably I've done five, 600 suites, I always picked a construction partner. So he and I would sign checks together, Generally, I had the vision, I had the ideas, and then I picked a partner who is a, we'll call it, implementer. Now, you mentioned that uh, you choose partners that are, you know, have the expertise in different uh, industries, and you do kind of the legal and some of the financing. Do you also keep the veto power on uh, since you're doing the financing? Well, uh, Vito, generally the partners I've picked who you know, they're mostly friends. I do not go to third parties and look for people I don't know. So if I sort of, I have a wide circle. And in that circle, if I know one of my friends is a construction fellow, then he'll do the construction. I'll say, if you want to put in equal money to me, we'll be 50-50 partners. I listen to him on the construction. He'll generally listen to me on the vision. But a, a true entrepreneur, you should listen to other people who have good ideas because we entrepreneurs or none of us know everything. So I always like input from intelligent people. And, uh, you know, usually uh, whether it was startup of a few companies you try to build and uh, whether it's uh, development, long process, how do you keep your partners accountable? Well, uh, Accountable, I think we just keep each other accountable. You start something and you finish it. 
<laughs> that's easy. <laughs> but how, through the process, how do you keep people focused, accountable, moving forward? Well, the people that I know, we're all we're we're all entrepreneurs in a way. Um, so <clears throat> if we're if we can't do it ourselves with our entrepreneurial skills, of course we hire people under contracts that have timelines, and we keep them moving forward. We, we talked a lot about real estate, mm-hmm. and I know you had one other, at least one other uh, venture that I know, which was uh, beef beef bacon. bacon. I've had beef bacon, I'll tell you that one. I've had hospital hello, which is now hospital goodbye. <laughs> so which failure would you like first? Um, you know what, I want to know what you've learned from your failures. I've learned I should stick to real estate. <laughs> because why I haven't made too many errors in real estate. Um, I do have passions, my mind has to keep going in many areas. I'm working on a brand new deal right now. I'm excited about it. It's not in the real estate business. I'm doing something in Arizona. You just said you just said you I know. need to stick to real estate. And now you're saying But it's true. My wife says to me, Bill, not another one. I says, Leave me alone. <laughs> My mind has to keep going. We have to keep achieving. So I've lost money. I invented bear sticks with a with a bell on them. My wife laughs. Lost a few dollars there. I invented a thing called Scrubber Jack on TV that we cleaned bathtubs with a telescopic pole, and we were copied by Ace Hardware. I've invented a few things. I haven't lost big money in them, but I lose a little here, a little there, but it's almost fun. I see. What, losing money or the process? <laughs> well, it's there's, a, there's always a, a big dream at the end. Uh, yeah. um, uh, you know, I, I've done business with Sumitomo of Japan mm-hmm. in the golf business. So I've had some really good winners that allow me to have some losers. Um, there's one thing I've noticed on your website when I read about us, and that is uh, going back, we're going back to real estate, that uh, you took the initiative and you're a co-founder of the real estate school in the SKM Business School of the University of Calgary. Can you share with us, elaborate more about how this idea came about? What was your involvement? Are you still involved? Great question. I'm very proud of that. Uh, As an entrepreneur, you can entrepreneur in business, but also ideas. So this idea came, I was in New York with my daughter and having coffee with her friend and a boyfriend. And I always ask people, so what do you do? Where do you want to be? because it's always good to change info. So the boyfriend at the time says, well, I work, for, I work for Brookfield in Toronto in real estate, but I'm taking an MBA at New York NYU. I says, you're taking an MBA in real estate at NYU and you work in Toronto, the center of the world? Kidding, of course, as an Albertan. Yeah. So he says, yeah. I says, you mean there's not an MBA in real estate in Canada? He says, no. Brookfield had to send to New York. I came back to Calgary, UFC, where I graduated commerce. I knew the dean quite well, a fellow named Dr. Waverman. I says, Dr. Waverman, I cannot believe a Canadian has to go to the U.S. to take a master's in real estate. I says, let's start the school. He says, you raise me two million and I'll start the school. So we actually raised six million. And today we have the first MBA in real estate studies in Canada. Now there is one, I believe, at York and uh, maybe at 
U of A, but it's not pure real estate. They do retail. So we're very proud, and I'm very proud. That's one of my, my proudest accomplishments, aside from making money, is to have been involved in starting a brand new school at the university level. So Are you still involved? Yeah, I'm, I'm a, a co-chairman of the advisory board. We have um, every two months meetings. I sit uh, on the entrepreneurial council. I judge. I mentor. I'm in the mentorship program where students come every two months and give ideas, and you sit around and you guide them. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> How important was it or is it for you to be involved in community work, community volunteering? Um, what else have you done that in that kind of category of uh, you know community support and volunteering? Well, I've, uh, I'm always uh, behind the scenes with political candidates, um, raising money, doing things for them. And I work for I have worked for some volunteer Israeli uh, groups, raised money for them. I was president of the Uh, Jewish National Fund, which plants trees in Israel, president of the Israeli Antiquities Authority in Canada. Um, I have in my office something that I will show you after, but a parchment of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the book of Isaiah, which contemplates the coming of the Messiah that Christianity is based on. It's sitting right in my office behind you right now. And every person of religion who comes in here I'm very proud to show them that Christianity is based on this Hebrew wording in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I got that from the Director General. Is there a date for the Messiah to arrive on that scroll? The, the Messiah, I think he's coming in, in, in a leap year. <laughs> yeah. He's coming in a leap year. And not, uh, not in the winter. Well, he might have come. To some people he's come. To other people he's coming. But we, don't, we never know uh, who's right or who's wrong. I, have, I, I personally believe in anything, whether it's religion or anything. If you really think you're really right, you're probably wrong. So if you had to give advice today to a new entrepreneur, um, how important is it to get involved in community work for an entrepreneur? Well, it's, uh, everyone says get because involved. Because it's time-consuming. Yeah, you, you network well. When I first started out, Um, building my law practice, real estate contacts, I built them up at the YMCA playing handball in the steam bath, believe it or not, where you're talking to people. We didn't need this uh, visual. Let's forget that one. (laughs) But you meet a lot of guys or girls wherever at athletic clubs. But uh, steam room, you meet guys and girls? Well, no, girls can meet their own girls. And, uh, but if you join sports clubs, sports orgs, whatever, and also the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. I used to go to all their lunches and uh, committees. I sat on a couple of committees. You meet really good people at the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and again, politically, but I really found that um, my entrepreneurship and meeting of people happen everywhere, wherever I go, even in a coffee shop. Just like I asked that kid what he did, why, you know, Brookfield, etc. What do you do? Where do you want to be in five or 10 years? What are you doing now? And often there's a synergy of ideas comes right from that meeting. We're getting very close to the end of our show, and I have a few uh, short questions for you. Um, What makes Secure Fund Capital and Development unique? Nothing. Nothing. What makes you unique? I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How do you measure your success? Well... You've got to measure it in your own mind against yourself. And I believe that one has to be content in life with his own lot in life. 
And my success, I wish I could have been wealthier and much more powerful one day, but I balanced my life with a good golf game, good tennis game, and I always paid attention to my family. So I think my success um, in financially could have been, we'll call it much greater had I not had other interests. So I consider myself a balanced entrepreneur, uh, and I'm proud of that. So I'm, I'm content at my lot, let's say my state in life. And, and you shouldn't wish to be somewhere else than where you are if you want to be happy. So I'm trying to be happy where I'm at right now. Any regrets along the way? Uh, some of the regrets were they, the Israel deal where I couldn't uh, persuade, uh, you know, the largest people in Canada to come mm. invest with me. So I have a few regrets in deals. But I believe uh, content-wise, I'm a still a happily married fellow, 38 years old, to the same wife, with same wife with no strife. <laughs> Kids are happy, and we're, thank God, healthy. And uh, so I don't think I have any regrets. I'm happy where I started to where I am today. I see. Um, in one minute, if you had to give one or two pieces of advice to a new entrepreneur, what would be your advice? Talk to people, ask questions. Uh, don't ever think one plus one is two. Always say, how can I make the situation that I'm looking at on the ground better? And has anyone else done it yet? But a lesson I did learn from my wife when I sometimes brought a unique idea. She says, Bill, why don't you just Google that? See if it exists. So anytime you have a new entrepreneurship idea, just go to Google, put in what you think is so unique, and 99% of the time you're going to find it's being done or it's being done now. So you always check with Google. But so did you check now that deal you're trying to do in Phoenix, which is not real estate, whether it's done or not? Yes, and it's not done. Okay. It's not done. So how much can we invest in? Cassandra and I. <laughs> I. I would not let anyone invest in any of my deals unless I know they're a guaranteed success. I don't take people's money unless I'm really sure. Bill, you have 30 seconds now to the end of the show. 30 and seconds. in these 30 seconds, I want to ask you one last question. What have you learned about yourself from this journey from a lawnmower guy to today? Well, I'm grateful for my upbringing, not as a really wealthy guy. I'm always grateful that I got the skills from a subliminal need to succeed. And sometimes if you're born into money or it's given too easily to you, you will ruin your children. So my, my message is uh, be reasonable with your children. Don't give them too much. Let them sort of be a touch hungry. And that's how I brought up my own children. Well, we reached the end of today's episode of Taking Care of Business. I want to thank you, Bill. Uh, you know, uh, we had a great time here. Um, and my guest was Bill Lister, owner of Secure Fund Capital and Development Corporation. Sharing with us your fascinating story was amazing, and we thank you again. Next week, we'll have new guests sharing with us their experience in entrepreneurship. Uh, I would love to hear from you uh, at dvwallach at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, like us on Facebook, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you, Cassandra, and uh, thank you for our engineer, Matt, today. 
Uh, we will meet you here at www.voiceamerica.com slash variety next Tuesday, March 13th, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific. Your host, David Wallach. Thank you for listening to Taking Care of Business. Please join David Wallach again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, make your week as great as you want it.